Listener Production. We are getting closer and closer to being a cashless society and big problems like the Optus outage yesterday highlight how vulnerable we can be when everything relies on digital payments. So, so many parts of our lives are affected. And in this episode, we're going to go to Sweden, which is much further down the track of going cashless. Last year, half the number of transactions there used cash compared to us here in Australia. The continued move to cashlessness marginalizes people who who are not digitally literate, so so particularly the elderly, um, but then also people who who perhaps are new to Sweden and and don't kind of have all the technology figured out. Yeah, so we'll look into the challenges of going cashless and whether they can be worked out so that it's fair. Uh, That is our briefing topic with Katrina Blowers. First, I'm joined by Antoinette Latouf as we bring you today's headlines. It is Thursday, the 9th of November. In another reputational blow for Optus, 10 million of its customers and hundreds and thousands of businesses were left without phone and internet access yesterday when the country experienced what's believed to be our biggest telco outage. Optus is putting it down to a technical network fault. Until we've done a full thorough root cause analysis, we really can't provide more information. That's CEO Kelly Bayer-Roseman there. The outage began around 4am and wasn't fixed until 5.30pm. And the Melbourne train network was also affected. About 500 train services were cancelled, which is approximately half the network because the Optus outage prevented the control centre from communicating with train drivers. Services resumed at 8.30am, but delays affected train lines for hours afterwards. So yeah, this is more bad news for and bad service from Optus um, after it was criticised for the way it handled last year's data breach. Yeah, what a shambles. I heard the CEO doing some interviews yesterday and she was not handling it very well at all. She basically had nothing to say. She couldn't explain what had happened. Um, She wasn't able to go into detail. It felt like she was just reading from talking points saying, we're working as hard as we can to restore the service. Yeah, look, and among some of the issues, as well as it just being inconvenient because I was one of the people affected, um, people also couldn't call triple zero from a landline um, or in some cases even get through to major hospitals to, to check on their loved ones. So for me, I was like, oh, this is inconvenient. I can't use my phone to make a call. I can't use my phone to tap and buy my morning coffee. Um, but for other people, it had you know, far more significant consequences. And dozens of people could be released from immigration detention after a landmark high court decision. So the court found that indefinite detention is unlawful and that overturns a 20-year precedent. The ruling follows a case involving a man held in immigration detention in Sydney who can't be resettled due to a criminal conviction. So more than 90 people are in a similar position to the plaintiff and according to the Human Rights Law Centre, 127 people have been in immigration detention for more than five years and the average period spent in detention is 709 days, so around two years. Yeah, this is pretty significant, Tom, although the government is still considering the judgment and what it's going to do next. Um, But if it goes ahead, you know, this will have life-changing consequences for people who've been detained for years, many of them not knowing when or even if they'll ever be released. I mean, it's very difficult for the people with criminal convictions like the guy involved in that case, but for the people who were just trying to seek safety or seek asylum, Mm. um, to be left in detention for years is just completely unfair and 
we've got the offshore processing system, which has stopped all those boat arrivals. So for the people left in detention, um, it just there doesn't seem to be any reasonable explanation why they should spend years locked up. Israel is closing in on Gaza City as the search continues for a Hamas leader who they say is in his bunker, while G7 leaders have called for humanitarian pauses overnight for the return of the hostages, and that's not to be confused with a ceasefire. According to Palestinian authorities, more than 10,000 Palestinians have been killed since the conflict began just over a month ago, and at least 4,000 children. And look, Tom, I'm just going to call out the lack of humanity, and I'm going to go as far as, say, idiocy of a humanitarian pause, like, in my opinion, to do what? Like, here, kids and doctors, have some water and get a few sips in, you know, get these boxes of food off the truck, and here, maybe we'll even give you some medical supplies before we give the thumbs up to bomb more. Like, Palestinian officials say Israel has dropped 18,000 tonnes of bombs on Gaza, and that's one and a half times more than bombs dropped on Hiroshima. And a month in, I don't know what you think, but in my opinion, I reckon more and more people are seeing behind the self-defence rhetoric. And that's not just from like the UNs and the Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch who say like a ceasefire is what's needed. But I'm watching the growing protests in both Israel and places around the world like New York where Jewish people are gathering en masse to say, okay, enough, this senseless violence, indiscriminate killing, this can't be the only way to find a solution. Yeah, I mean, it's so painful to see all the devastation um, in Gaza and also the devastation in Israel from those horrific attacks on October 7. The pause, I guess, it, yeah, helps people with that basic survival and allows the civilians to get out of the way. I mean, I'm not sure what else Israel's supposed to do, though, you know, after the attack of October 7, just to let the Hamas militants continue on and potentially launch another attack. Yeah, but I mean, violence and fighting can't be the only way. There are negotiations, there can be a prisoner and hostage swap. Like There has to be, there has to be another way in which both parties can find a resolution without going, oh, we're just going to, we're just going to continue killing. Yeah, I hope there is. And the Matildas and the Socceroos have struck a new pay deal, which means players could earn $100,000 more per year. Um, thanks to this new agreement. So they could be able to earn up to $200,000 depending if certain objectives are met. That's a major pay rise, especially for the Matildas. The deal follows the success of the World Cup, obviously. And clearly after that, they're worth a lot more money. Yeah, look, and Tom, as part of the new agreement, Players will also benefit from a 50-50 World Cup prize money split with Football Australia, um, while both senior national teams will share in Football Australia's revenues. So the previous agreement was from 2019, and that was a pretty significant deal too, because it was the first deal to ensure that the top Matilda players receive the same pay as the Socceroos. You know, and I think this is just such great news and Australia's really been leading the charge here. Another thing um, that's going to be part of this deal is that carers for the children of players up to the age of four, rather than just two, will be given accommodation as part of the deal. Um, and that's being described as globally unique. Yeah. And I mean, this all heads into the Olympics in Paris next year, um, where Australia's hoping to be a part of it there. So there could just be, you know, more glory for the Matildas and hopefully the Socceroos. That's it for the headlines. Katrina Blau's in next to look 
down um, into the future of what being cashless really looks like and some of the issues that arise. Now to our briefing topic on the lessons from the world's first cashless society and whether Australia could be next. As you heard earlier, we swiped or tapped our way through 84% of our transactions last year. So it just makes sense, doesn't it, that we're going to go cashless one day? Well, it's not as easy as that because there are still sections of the population here in Australia who rely on real money, like the elderly, migrants and people living in rural areas. And as you're about to hear, there are also big questions that still don't have answers around things like privacy and fraud, payment system outages and the geopolitical risk during times of war. Dr. Claire Ingram Bogus is from the Stockholm School of Economics in Sweden, and she joins us on the briefing to talk about all these big issues now. Claire, can you take us back to how the idea of a cashless society was advocated for in Sweden? Who wanted it more? Was it individuals or was it private companies? I'm not sure it was particularly advocated by anybody. Um, it just sort of emerged incrementally that people more and more at first used their bank cards to just pay for purchases where the existing infrastructure was already there to pay for bank cards. And as people more and more started to to prefer that as a solution, the banks then cottoned on and, and worked together to develop a solution called Swish, which is a peer-to-peer transaction system, which also then started with a fairly small following among individuals, but grew really fast and then grew from being peer-to-peer among individuals to, to also being something that is taken uh, or is used in e-commerce and at shops and these kinds of things. So no strong advocates at all, just a kind of rising tide of, of enthusiasm and, and convenience for the most part. How well has uh, Swish worked? Incredibly well. <laughs> the one thing about Swish is, is, of course, only that adults can have it. So you need to be 16 or older to get Swish. So that, of course, then excludes children. But among adults and among the digitally literate adults, it's at this point taken for granted. Um, if you buy something from from a lopis, which is basically like a, a, junk, a backyard sale, um, the expectation is that everybody has Swish. So today it's, it's ubiquitous and, and taken for granted. What have been some of the hiccups that have been experienced along the way? So there have been a few things. The, the one is that occasionally the banks go down. Or that is to say the the payment infrastructure, there's some sort of technical glitch. And so there have been and regularly are instances where it's just not possible to pay with your bank card. It's just not possible to pay with Swish if you are a user of a particular bank, for instance. So those kinds of, of issues occur all the time. There's also quite a, a kind of vocal uh, group known as Contact Uprorit, um, the, the cash uprising, um, who, who point, among other things, to how cash is inherently private while using your bank card is not, but also that the, the continued move to cashlessness marginalizes people who, who are not digitally literate, so, so particularly the elderly, um, but then also people who, who perhaps are new to Sweden and, and don't kind of have all the technology figured out. And then people out in the rural parts of society as well that maybe don't have the same kind of um, 3G or 4G internet connection that makes make it possible to use both Swish and, and then uh, credit card or, or debit card infrastructure. 
Yeah, so how has Sweden worked around this concept of digital exclusion? Are there places that, for example, I heard that um, some essential services like, you know, supermarkets and petrol stations and pharmacies are now being required or there's an idea for them to be required to, uh, to accept cash as well? So this is very much something that we're still figuring out. There was a a kind of an inquiry that was done earlier this year, and this was one of the recommendations that uh, gas stations and and pharmacies and grocery stores be required to take cash. The central bank and the government haven't gone that far yet, but in practice, it is still possible to use cash, particularly at grocery stores. So so in that way, you send your, um, I, I have two small children, they go down to the supermarket to buy candy on Saturdays and they can buy it with cash. So we're not quite at the point yet where we need workarounds for those kinds of situations. But people are very much concerned that that might be the point that we get to, that, that we need workarounds, but we're not there yet. You mentioned you yourself have two young children and that the age for being eligible to use SWISH is 16, which is still pretty young. Has there been any um, research done or or even anecdotally any evidence that uh, it's affecting young people's idea around money, their concept of money and its value? So it's very difficult to do research on small children. I've not seen anything here in Sweden. Just from an ethical perspective, it's difficult to to conduct that kind of research. The little I have seen has pointed in particular to something called the pain of paying. So this is this feeling that you have when when you see your money physically disappear, right? And of course, you don't really have that when you use your credit card or, or your debit card or even Swish because it just, you know, th- there's no tangible feeling of it disappearing. So there are concerns that that has then implications for for financial literacy um, in these formative years with younger people who who are just using how learning how to use money. So that's the one thing. But then there is also um, a concern, and again, this is this is concern rather than something based on robust studies. Although th- there is data to suggest that young people are are much more indebted than we were were at their age. So not young people in the kind of 15 to 20 age gap, but kind of 18 to 25, this sort of age, that they're much more indebted and that um, it's consumption kinds of loans. The concern is that this cashlessness has contributed to that because people are spending much more online. So they're using their money without having a sense of it disappearing, but then also doing things like taking SMS loans, and similar, which which also has that that kind of feeling of of getting money without tangibly understanding what it is that you you know this kind of quid pro quo involved in taking a loan or spending your money. And what's been the impact too on financial crimes? I understand that cash related crimes, unsurprisingly, are down. But um, what about things like uh, digital fraud? So that's a huge problem. Digital fraud. So all of these systems, digital systems are connected to a digital identity that we can access then from our mobile phones called Bank ID. And what these fraudsters are then doing is ringing up people, either pretending to be a bank or pretending to be a government authority and persuading people that they need to identify themselves using the digital identity system. You know, you don't necessarily look at what the services you're identifying yourself at. And in that way, fraudsters get access to people's bank accounts um, or they initiate transactions, which you then unintentionally confirm through your digital identity. 
And so this has become an enormous problem, particularly for, for the digitally less literate, so, so elderly people, people with intellectual disabilities. Um, and, and so, you know, you may not have cash fraud anymore or, or theft in that sense, but it then gets replaced by, by this other quite enormous different kind of fraud. On a bigger scale, I've seen critics of um, this cashless approach talk about the larger geopolitical risk and the potential for the payment systems of entire countries being shut down during times of war. Has that been spoken about much? Yeah, absolutely. So this was part of the backdrop to the investigation that was released earlier this year. And also something that was brought up by the the chief of the central bank earlier this year, that there is a feeling in Europe that war is not far from our borders, understandably. And so that in the name of resilience, we need to be setting up our society to still in some way function. And of course, then you can envision a situation in which we don't have mobile internet, we probably don't have electricity. And then, yes, cash is something that we we need to have. And so we have these these little pamphlets that get put into our post boxes. And one of the recommendations is to keep cash at home together with, I don't know, cans of beans and, and packages of pasta for this kind of eventuality. But then that's also some of the, the backdrop to, to the recommendation that uh, grocery stores, pharmacies and, and uh, petrol stations be obliged to take cash is, is to, to kind of make our society more resilient in, in the event of some of these infrastructures being a problem. So looking into the future where more and more economies could be moving towards a, a cashless approach, whether it be just organically or in a more structured way, what do you think the solution would be to decide upon a more cohesive approach? Do you think, as some have suggested, a, a, one answer could be a central bank-issued digital currency? So there are a few possibilities. The The one is a central bank digital currency, and, and that's to a large degree, solves the question of the payment rails, where you have some sort of national payment rails, uh, where, where you're kind of prioritizing your own country. Of course, that then comes still with the weaknesses of if, if the electricity or the internet goes down, it doesn't necessarily continue to work. Some of the solutions that have been discussed at the same time around the designing of the central bank digital currency is to have kind of offline mode where transactions below a certain value can still be executed even if there is no internet. But in any event, to be able to have an offline version built into a kind of central bank digital currency. Um, and, and also in, in the name of anonymity, one of the design things that has been brought up has been the, the ability for small transactions of certain sizes to be you know, run in some pseudonymous or anonymous way so that there isn't complete transparency of your entire payment uh, history, right? And there has been a, a very long multi-year discussion um, in Sweden. There's been experimentation, there's been small prototypes built around building a central bank digital currency here in Sweden. So, so we have come quite far in terms of experimenting with some of these ideas, but there are still design questions that are that are almost political, right? Like, is transparency a good thing or a bad thing? With with transparency of transactions comes a certain amount of surveillance. How much surveillance are we willing to accept as a society? How much, you know, all of these kinds of questions that, that are implicit in an entirely digital system that we haven't completely resolved. 
of course, then you see the the digital euro under discussion as well, and and moving very very fast, and and looking like it's likely to happen. And my opinion is is that will probably reignite some of the interest in in the Eakona, as it's called here, the E Crown, uh, and and maybe we'll see some change there. That was Dr. Claire Ingram Bogus from the Stockholm School of Economics in Sweden. Uh, some really interesting points she raises there, which, you know, still don't have any clear pathways. And I think the rest of the world has been watching on, looking at some of the micro and macro mistakes that have occurred that, you know, you often don't know about until you try these things. It probably is an inevitability that we will increasingly organically go cashless, but given how big Australia is and there are so many regional parts that still rely on cash, I think we are still a long way off. Listener.